Spirit of the living God, as we look now at the Scripture that you breathed out through the Apostle John and through the prophet Daniel, we ask that you would so illumine our minds to understand how we can enter the kingdom of the Son of Man. And you would work in every heart in order that all who leave here today, having been here with us, will leave assured in their hearts of new life in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. And let's take our Bibles again. Uh, We had a reading from John chapter 3. We are going to be in John chapter 3 this morning, a passage that may be very familiar to many of us. But we're also going to be in Daniel chapter 7, so I want want you to just kind of keep your finger in both of those places. If you have a little piece of paper in your Bible, you may want to stick it in Daniel 7 because we will go there uh, in just a moment. But I do want to invite you now into Daniel 7, or sorry, John 3, not just to look at it. I want to invite you into this conversation that uh, Jesus had with this Pharisee named Nicodemus. Last Sunday we were in Daniel chapter 7, and we looked in detail at this vision that was given to the prophet he had a vision of the Ancient of Days who at the end of time entered into his, court, his courtroom. And uh, in this courtroom, he judges the, the beasts, these evil empires that have appeared on the stage of the history of our world, uh, all the way from Babylon until Rome. Daniel also saw that there was some kind of a continuation of Rome, that even though Rome ceases to exist There were ten horns on this beast, and out of the ten comes this one little horn uh, who distinguishes himself from all of the others, which we have discerned to be the final manifestation of these beasts that will appear just prior to the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The great thing about this courtroom scene is not just that the beasts are judged and ultimately destroyed, the great scene that happens is that the Son of Man comes on the clouds, and he comes right into this courtroom where judgment takes place. And to Jesus, the Son of Man is given uh, an eternal kingdom that will never be destroyed. Today, we will look at Daniel 7, we just read those verses again, but we will also be in John chapter 3. Because in John chapter 3, we are provided some information uh, that Daniel does not give us in Daniel chapter 7. Specifically, the information is about entrance into the kingdom of the Son of Man. Uh, Daniel has this vision, and he has a vision of all the peoples of the world worshiping the Son of Man. That they are a part of this eternal kingdom that will be given to him. But we, we... we don't discover how. We don't discover how that actually happens. In, the, in our church, we, um, we have what we call a confessional statement. That is, we have a, a statement of faith, a statement of the doctrinal beliefs of our, of our church. And um, that statement really is a summary of what we believe and what we teach here. And in the third article of our confessional statement. The article is on Revelation, not the book of Revelation, but Revelation, God revealing himself. 
And so it touches on much of what the Bible says. And there is one line in our confessional statement that'll come up on the screen right at this point that I want to draw your attention to because it pertains to what we're talking about this morning. It says, while the Bible touches on diverse matters, its ultimate focus is the person and work of Jesus Christ in his first and second coming. And hence, no portion of the Bible, even the Old Testament, is fully understood until it leads to him. Now, that's an important line because this makes it very, very clear that all of the Old Testament prophetic writings which were written before Jesus came, they all point to the Lord Jesus in one way or another. And over the last number of years, we have preached from the book of Genesis, we've preached from the book of Exodus, the first two books of the Bible, and I was careful to show you in each message that came on Sunday morning where Jesus can be found in Genesis and Exodus, uh, where these books foreshadow Jesus or point to Jesus or allude to Jesus or specifically mention the Lord Jesus. And uh, we have done the same in this series from the book of Daniel. And last Sunday we looked at chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. This is the time for you to look now in the book of Daniel. Keep your finger in John 3. We're going to be spending the bulk of our time in John 3. But I just want to read these verses again to you, which I already paraphrased to you before, but, but feel the power of what Daniel saw, verse 13, Daniel 7, in my vision at night I looked, and there before, before me, which is simply another expression saying, I looked and, and look, there's an exhortation here, look, before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now this expression, son of man, is, is nothing more than, a, uh, than an Old Testament way of saying a Semitic idiom, which simply means a human being. Son of man, a human being. That's all it means. When Daniel spoke these words, Daniel was not infusing into them some uh, deep spiritual meaning or some special title. The key here in Daniel 7 is that what Daniel saw was someone like a son of man. That is the key word, like. So he's like a human being, implying that yes, he, he is a human being, he appears like a human being, but he is like a human being, meaning he is more than a human being. And so again, here in Daniel 7, we see what our confessional statement says, how true it is that all of this points leads to the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus, when Jesus began his ministry on the earth at approximately 30 years of age, Jesus picked up this phrase, son of man, and he applied it to himself. And in so doing, Jesus infused this phrase with a special title. It's a title that Jesus used more than any of the other titles that he used in referring to himself. More than Messiah, more than King, more than Son of God. 
81 times in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. He describes himself as the one of Daniel chapter 7. This is his self-designation concerning himself. In other words, he, he is saying every time he says, I am the Son of Man, or the Son of Man will do this, or the Son of Man will do that, every time he says that, he's saying, it's me. What, what Daniel saw in chapter 7, it's me. I am the Son of Man. So because this phrase is so important, this title has so much meaning, um, I want to I'll try to, as best as we can, to unpack its, significant for, its significance for us. As it were, I want to drill down a little bit deeper into this phrase today. And I want to do this because there is something here that in John chapter 3, that frankly, either Daniel did not see or he did not record, at least in chapter 7. There are many passages in the New Testament writings that are linked in some way or another to Daniel chapter 7. Um, So we will not be able to be exhaustive on this today, but in John chapter 3, we see a very direct link, and we see it in this conversation that Jesus had with this religious ruler named Nicodemus. And what is that link? The link between Daniel chapter 7 and John chapter 3. Well, in Daniel, Daniel 7, Daniel saw the Son of Man, and the Son of Man was given a kingdom which is eternal. In John chapter 3, Jesus spoke of the Son of Man himself, and he talked about entering the kingdom of God. So look at chapter 3, verse 13. Chapter 3, 13. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. There's the phrase from Daniel 7. He uses it again in verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now, that is information about the lifting up of the Son of Man. This is a reference to the cross. This is information that Daniel did not see in Daniel chapter 7. Now, look at chapter 3, verse 3. In reply, in reply to Nicodemus, I tell you the truth, unless a man is born again, he cannot see, see what? The kingdom of God. Daniel 7 mentions the kingdom of the Son of Man. Verse 5, Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, unless a man is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, in this passage, verses 1 through 15, we have an important life-changing conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. There are three things in this passage that we're going to focus on, but not in any particular order. They'll just sort of come up in different ways. The first is the passage speaks about the kingdom of God. We've seen that. We're going to talk about what that means. Secondly, um, the passage speaks of the Son of Man. The passage tells us who the Son of Man is, where he's come from, and what the Son of Man will do. This is Jesus speaking, so this would be in the future for Jesus at this point in time. It's already been done, but Jesus put it in future tense. The Son of Man will be lifted up. 
The third thing is this phrase, this expression, born again, or born from above, or new birth. It's all here in this passage. Now, this is the new thing that Jesus adds, that Daniel doesn't tell us. Daniel doesn't tell us about the new, the new birth, but Jesus does in John chapter 3. Now, keep this in mind that we can't talk about one of these things without talking about the other. You can't talk about being born again without talking about the kingdom of God. And you can't talk about the kingdom of God without talking about Jesus, the Son of Man. And you can't talk about Jesus, the Son of Man, and the kingdom of God without talking about being born again. They are linked to each other. They are interrelated with each other. So now, we're going to talk about Daniel chapter 7, John chapter 3, and you, and you, you and me. What do these texts specifically say to us? Now there are three questions that I'm gonna to try to answer. Three questions that come out of this pas- passage that I think the passage answers for us. And the first is, what is the new birth? What does it mean to be born again? Secondly, how does this new birth happen? Thirdly, how can this new birth happen to you? What is the new birth? How does it happen? How can it happen to you? So, question number one, what is this new birth? And notice here, in verse three and verse five, I want you to look at the text, this is important. I want you to see what the Bible says. I don't want you to believe what I'm saying, I want you to believe what I'm saying the Bible says. Verse three and verse five, the kingdom and being born again are linked. They're linked. Verse three, Jesus says, unless you're born again, you cannot what? See, you can't see it. You you can't see the kingdom of God. Verse five, unless you're born of water and the spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, it's interesting to find language like this in the Gospel of John. What do I mean by that? John in his Gospel does not refer much to the kingdom. Matthew does. In other words, this kingdom of God language that John uses is not what we find normally in the Gospel of John. Matthew is constantly talking about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. It's like every time Jesus begins to speak, he says something about the kingdom of God. He gives the, the, par- the, par- the, par- the parables that he taught. The kingdom of God is like this. In other words, Jesus says so much about the kingdom of God in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but very little is said in the Gospel of John. Now, remember, John is not contradicting what Matthew wrote. These men believe the same things, but Matthew approaches writing the life of Jesus from his angle, from his personal experience, and John comes at it from his angle. Both of them controlled by the Holy Spirit in doing so, so they say different things, but they're, but they're, they're talking about the same things. John seldom uses kingdom language. This is one point in the Gospel of John where, where he does. The other time that John uses, to my knowledge, the only other time John, Jesus refers to the kingdom, or John puts it in his writing, is in John chapter 19 when Jesus is before Pontius Pilate and Pontius Pilate is trying him. And Pilate says, are you a king? And Jesus says, I am. But then he adds, my kingdom is not of this world. 
So when we talk about the kingdom of God in the Gospel of John, we're talking about something that's very, very different from the kingdoms of this world. The kingdom of God is something that comes and it is something that is different from the kingdom of this world. Now, what would Nicodemus then have thought when Jesus started talking to him here about being born again and seeing or entering the kingdom of God? Well, Nicodemus was a teacher. Verse 10 draws that out. Verse 1 points out that he was a member of the Jewish ruling council. So this is not an uneducated man. Nicodemus was, had full knowledge as a teacher in Israel of, of, of the Old Testament writings. And so he would have been familiar with Daniel chapter 7. And so in his mind, the kingdom is something that comes in the future. And he's right. If he understood Daniel 7 at all, he knows that this happens at the end of time in a courtroom scene with the Ancient of Days. He knows that the kingdom comes then. So when Jesus spoke to him of the kingdom of God, Nicodemus rightly discerned that this is something in the future. Listen, the kingdom of God is now, but it's also in the future, but the new birth, being born again, is something from the future that happens now. It's something from the future that happens now. Now, why do I say, I, say, I say that? Well, I say that because in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is teaching, and he makes this state, state, statement. He says, at the renewal of all things, the Son of Man, there's that phrase, the Son of Man, will sit on his glorious throne. What throne is he speaking about? The same thing that, he's, that, that Daniel tells us in Daniel chapter 7. At the renewal of all things. This is at the end of time. What is God going to do? There's going to be a renewal of all things. God is going to renew this creation. And when he renews the creation, Jesus, the Son of Man, will sit on his glorious throne. Now this phrase, at the renewal of all things, literally is the word regeneration. At the regeneration, at the end of time, at the second coming of Christ, at the regeneration, God is going to remake the world. Regeneration means to give life to. God is going to completely transform the created order. This world as we know it now will be transformed. It will be renewed. It will be, I believe, like what it was in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 before sin came into the world. God will restore the new creation. The Bible refers to it as the new heaven and the new earth. And this will be the regenerating power of God into creation itself, which is now frustrated and given over to death and is constantly in a state of deterioration according to Romans chapter eight. At the end of time, a regeneration will happen. God will put an end to evil and suffering in the world. God will put an end to all of the wrong that has occurred throughout history, and God will regenerate the world. It's amazing. Now, interestingly, there's a small letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a man named Titus. He wrote two letters to Timothy, and he wrote one letter to Titus. It's in your Bible, Titus chapter three, verse five, and the apostle Paul said this to Titus. 
God saved us, not because of righteous works done by us, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul takes this word regeneration, which Jesus used about something that's going to happen in the future, and he says it can happen right now. It's happening right now. God saves us, not because of righteous things that we have done, but by the washing of regeneration. There's a work that God does in the hearts of human beings that completely regenerates them and transforms them. In other words, friends, the new birth from the future is what God What God will do then is what he is doing now in human beings. Not all human beings, but in those who believe. Interestingly, this this coming regeneration in the future, the Bible refers to as the new creation. And Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he, she is a, what? A new creation. So the power of the future is coming into the present and the new birth is the power that God will use to regenerate the whole world in the future and it's coming into those who believe in Jesus now. The new birth is the power of the future brought into the present, which means that the new birth is not just from the future. The new birth changes you. It changes you. Now, the metaphor that Jesus uses here is that of birth. You must be born again. The idea in the metaphor is that something will be implanted in you. New life will be given to you. To be born again could also be translated to be born from above. So born from the future, born from above, it is God's life coming into you and giving you life all over again. Now look at verse five. I tell you the truth, unless a man is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now immediately there's some controversy because many people read verse five and they conclude that what the water is referring to is baptism. That in order for you to enter the kingdom of God, you, you must be born of the Spirit, but, but, but there also has to be this birth in water. You need to be baptized. The question we need to ask ourselves is, is that how Nicodemus would have understood what Jesus was saying? Would Nicodemus have gone to baptism in light of what Jesus said? I don't think so at all, because remember, Nicodemus was familiar with the Old Testament writings, and and this idea of water linked to the Spirit would have reminded him of Ezekiel chapter 36, where God says he will pour out water on the desert, and he's referring to God pouring out his Spirit, that God will pour out his Spirit, that God will give his Spirit, that the Spirit will be poured out on the dry, desert-like land, meaning human human hearts that are devoid of life, and he will give them life. He will give them a new heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, the metaphor then is of the Spirit being implanted into people's lives, and and it's about a baby being born. 
Now, when a baby is, is, is born, we need to think this through a little bit. We need to unpack, unpack this a bit. And Tim, Tim Keller, in one of the messages he gave a few years ago that I heard him preach, says that what this is describing for us here, this change, is a new sensibility and a new identity. A new sensibility. All living things uh, um, sense the environment in which they live. And we know that when a baby's born, that a a baby is in a certain environment in in his or her mother's womb, and at the moment of birth, the baby comes out, and, and all of a sudden there's this reaction of the baby to the new environment in which the baby has come. There are sensations. To be born again means that, that there are spiritual realities that individuals are going to become sensitive to. They're going to sense them in a way that they, they never really have before because new life has been implanted into them. I, I've told this story before, but um, when Andrea and I lived in a small town north of Manila, uh, I used to go out once a week to, to do a Bible study in a, in a barrio area where there was a, 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 fam, a family called the Cruz, the Cruz family. And they were um, a, a very, very deeply religious people and very superstitious. And I went out there and uh, I, I, was, I gave them all Bibles to read and we would sit in a circle and we would read the Bible and I would explain it to them and I was trying to help them understand salvation in Christ. And I remember that Dorai, who was a young woman at that time, in her early 20s, she worked in a bank in town, a very educated woman, and I remember speaking to her, and we came to Romans chapter 4, and we were reading Romans 4, and she had this puzzled look on her face. And I said to her, Dorai, read it again. And she read the verse again, and the verse was about Abraham being justified by faith. She read it, she looked up at me, the big question mark on her face, wrinkles on her brow. I don't get it. I said, Dora, I read it again. And she did, and as she did, I prayed. I said, God, open her eyes. And I saw her, she's looking at this Bible on her lap, and she's looking like this, and then all of a sudden she goes, and the lights came on. I mean, she lit up like a Christmas tree. And at that moment, she was born again. Because the truth of what she saw had entered her heart and she was given new life. She sensed, she saw what she had never seen before. And look at verse 3. Unless you're born again, you cannot what? See. It's all about senses, about sensibility. In John 9, we have the story of the the blind man. He blind from birth. And you read the story, and it's an amazing story how, how Jesus restores his sight. But the interesting thing is the story isn't just about him getting his physical sight back. It's not just about the miracle of healing. It, 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 it was another miracle that happened in the man's heart because a little later on in the story, Jesus goes to the man and he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? There's the Son of Man again. And the blind man says, who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? And Jesus says, the one who is speaking to you, I am the son of man. And the blind man believed, meaning the blind man finally saw. He saw the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
One of the most well-known of all the Christian hymns is Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, written by a slave trader, a former one. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. But now I see. You see, the mind is illumined, and the heart is moved. There is comprehension and understanding in the mind and the heart is changed and moved and the love of God becomes real. Before you are born again, you can talk about the love of God, but it's always theoretical. It's always abstract. But when you are born again, you experience the love of God. The love of God is poured out into your heart by the Holy Spirit. And the difference is between audio and and video. Do you know what I'm saying? The difference between audio and video. Last week, last week, Saturday, Andrea and I um, uh, went to Toronto and I took part in the funeral of an 88 year old man who had discipled me as a young believer in, in Jesus. This man had a tremendous impact on my life in 1972 through 75. His name is Ian. Ian passed away, and there we were at his funeral service. When his youngest son got up at the beginning of the service to eulogize his father, I don't know what happened, but the person in charge of the video, you, may, you know in funerals today, you've got pic, pictures of the person in the, back, the background. Well, they left the video on, and here's this young man speaking about his father, but, but pictures of his father were flashing across the screen, and I'm, I'm trying to listen to Peter eulogize his father, but my eyes are on what's on the screen, and listen, I heard Peter, but I didn't hear Peter. Do you, do you, do you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I heard his words but my focus was on these pictures of Ian because video always trumps audio always I mean what you see is, is, is a greater impact than what you actually hear and friends that's what it's like for many of us you you hear me preach uh, you, you've, you've heard others talk about Jesus. You, you even read the Bible. I mean, you, you, all of this stuff is happening to you, but really, your mind, you're, you're watching some other video. In other words, there are other loves in your life and things that you, that you are all about, and that's the video portion of your life. And so the audio, never it kind of goes in one ear and out the other. It doesn't really stick because audio is always trumped by video. But when the new birth happens, God comes in video, not just in audio. And you begin to see him and see things about him that you never saw before because the life of God comes into you like a baby being born. It also refers to a new identity. When babies are born, they are born usually into family units. Turn, turn over the page. Just go back from the Gospel of John, chapter 3. Go back to two chapters to chapter 1. John chapter 1. Just, just turn back, probably a page or two in your, in your Bible. John chapter 1, and go to verse 12. Look at what it says. Yet to all who received him, that is received Jesus, John 1 verse 12, to all who received Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become what? 
children of God. Children of God. There's identity. Notice verse 13. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Do you see what he's saying here? You, you are born of God. You come into a new family and you receive a new identity. And this isn't, this isn't human. This doesn't come from a, a, a human decision. This is a supernatural thing. When, when you are born, you receive an identity. Now what is your identity? It is the sense of who you are the sense of the worth that you have because of who you are. Many people think that identity is something that I have to achieve, something I can do on my own. It's not. Identity is something that you receive in the new birth. You become a child of God. God is your father. Jesus is your brother. And the Holy Spirit is your companion. So the Holy Spirit, the new birth that comes from the Spirit, is a birth that comes from the future. It's a birth that changes you, but notice verse 7, it is also a birth that qualifies you. It qualifies you for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, you should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Verse 3, if this doesn't happen to you, you can't see the kingdom of God. If it doesn't happen to you, you can't enter the kingdom of God. It is this new birth that qualifies you to enter the kingdom of God. What is the new birth? It's something that comes from the future. It changes you, and it qualifies you. Now, how does this happen? Question two. How does this happen? Well, friends, in one sense, there's nothing that you can do to make this happen. It is not something that you can make happen. It is not something that you inherit from your parents. Go back to John 1. It's not a human decision. It's not natural descent. It's not a husband's will. It's not something you get from your parents. It's not passed on to you genetically. If your parents are born again, that doesn't mean that you are born again. You don't get it that way. It's not something that comes to you that, uh, by any works that you would do. Titus chapter 3 makes that clear. It's God saves us not because of righteous things which we have done, but by his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, it's something that God does. does. It's, not, it's not by reforming your life. It's not by you pulling up your spiritual boots, so to, so to speak, and, and, and saying, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to be more moral than I ever have been before. And if I do all these things, then maybe, maybe God will make me born again. No, no, it's not some kind of an outward change. And it's definitely not an inward change that you can produce by yourself. It can't happen that way. But it is an inward change. It's not something that you can make happen, but it is something that happens to you. Again, I go back to verse, verse 5. I tell you the truth, unless a man is born of water and the Spirit. 
It's from the Holy Spirit. Verse six, flesh gives birth to flesh. A human being can only give birth to a human being. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit, Holy Spirit, gives birth to spirit. We are body, soul, spirit, as it were. There's a, there's a, there's a non-physical part of us, and the Bible makes it clear that we are dead in our sins, that our spirit is dead to the life of God, but the Holy Spirit can give birth to our spirit and bring forth this, this new birth, this life. Look at what he says in verse 8. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you, you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Jesus isn't saying the people who are born of the Spirit fly all over the place like the wind. That's not the point that he's making. He's talking rather like those born of the Spirit, what happens to them is sort of like the wind. You don't know where the wind's coming from. All of a sudden, the wind just shows up, and you don't know where the wind is going. Now, it's true today we have meteorologists, and we can study weather, and weather patterns, and, and the weatherman can guess, I guess, that you know what might happen in terms of the wind. But, but for the most part, we don't know where the wind comes from. The, the idea that, that Jesus is saying here is this is a mysterious work. You can't control the wind. And you can't understand the wind. This is from the Holy Spirit. It is supernatural. He's the one who, who does this. He regenerates an individual. He's the one who gives life. And our finite minds cannot understand an infinite work that God does, who is infinite himself. I like what the late Dr. Billy Graham used to say about, about this when he used to preach all over the world, he would speak about being born again from this text. And he would often refer, refer to the fact that he was born in 1918 and he, and he grew up on a farm. And he said, and on our farm, he said, we had black cows and we had brown cows, he said. He said, and it always amazed me as a young man that our black cows and brown cows would eat green grass and produce white milk and yellow butter. We don't understand it. And that's what the new birth is all about. It's real, but it's almost incomprehensible. Now, how can the new birth happen then to you? How can it happen to you? Now, look at verse 9. Nicodemus, after hearing Jesus say this, says, how can this be? How can this be? Nicodemus understood a lot of what Jesus was saying, but there was a lot that he didn't get. How can this be? And Jesus was surprised. Verse 10, you're, you're Israel's teacher and you do not understand these things? You see, Nicodemus, as it were, understood to a certain point. It's like he had all the pieces of the puzzle together in his mind. And there was this piece and that piece and this piece and that piece. But somehow Nicodemus couldn't, couldn't put the pieces together so that this made sense to him. Again, he wasn't born again yet. Jesus answers Nicodemus' question beginning at verse 11. He says some interesting things, but what he says climaxes in verse 13. Notice what he says. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. No one has gone into heaven except the one who has come from heaven, the Son of Man. He's referring to, to himself. What's Jesus saying? 
There is no human being who can somehow get up to heaven to bring down this new birth. It's a birth that comes from above. It's a birth from the future. It's a birth from the power of God. And there's no one who can get up to heaven to bring this thing down. But there is one who has come down from heaven, the Son of Man. Listen, the Holy Spirit, when he brings about the new birth, he always uses means. Sometimes, of course, he uses human beings to share the gospel. He always uses means. Sometimes he'll arrange things circumstantially in a person's life to bring them to this point in time. He uses means. But the greatest means that the Holy Spirit uses is the Holy Spirit brings the new birth to us. He causes the new birth to happen in us by directing our minds, by directing our attention to consider who the Son of Man is. It's all about Jesus. Look at verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So in verse 13, we have who the Son of Man is. Who is he? Well, he is the one who has come down from heaven. What, is, what, what has he done? Well, he was lifted up, it says here, meaning lifted up on the cross. The Holy Spirit also always brings us to the point where we will think through and consider who the Son of Man is and what the Son of Man has done. We're talking about the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus. You see, the role of the Holy Spirit working on your heart and mine is to glorify Jesus. He, he, he blows Jesus up so we can see him. He puts Jesus on video, not on audio, so that we can see him. He makes Jesus real to us. He causes us to see. No one has gone up into heaven to bring down this new birth, but someone has come down from, from heaven, and who brings down the new birth? The Son of Man does. And the fact that he has come from heaven points out to us something about him we need to understand that he was existent before he became a human being. If he came down from heaven, he was eternally preexistent with the Father. This brings us right back to Daniel chapter 7 again. The Son of Man goes right into the courtroom of the Ancient of Days because he was one with the Father from eternity past. Jesus says in John 6, what if you see the Son of Man ascend to heaven where he was before? You see, Jesus existed from all eternity. The Son of Man, that phrase, that's what it means. But it also speaks of, of the authority that he has had from all eternity. He came from heaven. And the one who has come from heaven has authority, as it were, to give this life to whom he chooses but Jesus says more in verse 14. He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. What does Jesus do now? Jesus directs the attention of Nicodemus to an Old Testament story. He takes Nicodemus back to Numbers chapter 21, one of the five books of Moses, the last book, he takes us to this book, Numbers chapter 21, and in Numbers 21, we have the story of what Moses did. Just as Moses lifted up the snake, he placed the snake on a pole up high so that everyone could see it. What actually happened? Israel had sinned greatly. 
Israel rebelled against the Lord. And God, as it were, sent venomous snakes among the people when they were camping, as it were, on their way to the the promised land. And these venomous snakes bit so many of them, and it was God's judgment on them because they had sinned. But God in his mercy said to Moses, Moses, I want you to, take a, uh, I, I want you to make a, a bronze serpent, a bronze snake. And so Moses did. He made the bronze snake. And, 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 and God said to Moses, I want you to stick the bronze snake on top of a pole. I want you to stick that pole in the ground. And presume, presumably it was on the ground on an elevated place. And he said, and you tell the people who've been bitten by snakes, who have this poisonous venom in their veins, you just tell them to look at the snake at the top of the pole. And if they will, they will be healed. They will be rescued. And that's exactly what Moses did. Now Nicodemus knew this story. So when Jesus said, as the snake was put up on a pole, lifted up so that everyone could see, Nicodemus goes, yeah, I remember that. I get it. You see, friends, you and I are snake bitten. You you and I have the venomous poison in our veins right now. We have the poison of sin in our veins, and this poison has gone into the depths of our soul so that the totality of our being is affected by rebellion against God. We are all sinners, and we've fallen short of the glory of God. But Jesus was lifted up. That is, he was put up on a cross for all to see. Now, this is hard to say, but Jesus became the snake. He became the snake. The Son of Man became the snake. He who had never sinned, he who had never had an evil thought, the, the, one, the one who never committed any evil deed, the man who was the Son of God, the Lamb of God, pure, blameless, without sin, that man became sin, the Bible says, for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The Bible tells us, cursed is the one who hangs on a tree, but Jesus became a curse for us. You remember the serpent in the Garden of Eden? The snake was cursed by God because he introduced sin into the world. And Jesus, as it were, became like that snake. He came under the curse of God in order that we might be freed from the poison of sin. Jesus took the sting of death. When he was lifted up on the cross, he took the poison of sin on the cross. And the poison and the punishment he has taken away. On the cross, Jesus was in the place of that snake. Jesus is the source of our healing. Jesus is a source of rescue. He rescues us from the poison of sin and from the wrath of Almighty God. And the Holy Spirit, who gives to us the new birth, draws our attention to this. The Holy Spirit working in our hearts wants us to understand who Jesus is, the Son of Man eternally preexistent, who brings the new birth down from heaven. He wants us to understand exactly what Jesus did when Jesus died on the cross. And to be born again, friends, you need to understand who Jesus is and what he did on the cross. Verse 15 
that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. He elaborates further on this in the 16th verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish. Perish like the people in the wilderness who've been bitten by snakes, but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him. Listen, what does this mean? To believe in Jesus. Well, friends, this isn't just giving some mental assent to the facts about Jesus. It's not just sitting there in your seat saying, yeah, John, I believe your explanation today. That's not not what we're talking about here. It's not being convinced in your mind of the facts about Jesus. I mean, look at Nicodemus in verse two. He comes to Jesus at night and he says, what does he say? He says, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who's come from God. For no one can do the miraculous signs that you are doing unless God is with him. Do you see what Nicodemus believed? He wasn't born again, but he believed Jesus was a teacher. Was he right? 100%. He believed that Jesus had come from God. Was he right? 100%. He believed that Jesus was a miracle worker. Was he right? 100%. And he believed that God was with Jesus. Was he right? 100%. He believed all of that about Jesus. But Jesus said, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. You see, Jesus gave the illustration of the people looking at a snake on a pole. He gave that illustration now of the Son of Man being raised on a pole, on a tree, on a cross. What did the people do when it came to that snake? They had to look. If they looked at the snake, they were healed. They were rescued immediately. Their life was restored to them. And if we look to Jesus, understanding who is on that cross and what he did on that cross when he was lifted up, that he died in your place to take the poison and the punishment that should be yours, when you look to Jesus like that and you say, that was for me, and there's nothing else that I need to do than new birth. New birth is what happens. Now look at this metaphor one more time. Will you bear with me for just a couple of minutes more? Look at the metaphor one more time. You must be born again. Question, how much effort does the baby have to do in order to be born? What does a baby have to do in order to be born? Nothing. Nothing. Baby doesn't do anything. Baby comes out, but the baby doesn't do anything. Listen, I I witnessed the birth of our four kids. I witnessed it. I was there in the delivery room with my wife and friends. I almost fainted. (laughs) Now, what did I observe? I can assure you that I did nothing. And you know what? My kids, they did nothing. But there was someone in that delivery room that did all the work. And I never knew my wife was that physically strong. She did all the work. Now, every child is born through the pain and the suffering of someone else. When a mother gives birth, She does put her life at risk. And in some cases, we know 
the cost of her life in order to bring life into the world. Jesus said this in John chapter 16. He said, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her hour has come. That's an interesting line. Her hour has come. It's a line that Jesus used many times. My hour has not yet come, he said. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her hour has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the pain. She forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. It's very interesting that Jesus uses the phrase, her hour has come, because that's the phrase that he uses in reference to his own death. You remember when he turned the water into wine at Cana at a wedding? Mary came to him, can you do something about the wine? They run out of wine, and Jesus said, woman, my time, my hour has not yet come. And then finally, at the end of the Gospel of John, he said, the time has come for the Father to glorify me in his death and in his resurrection. You see, Jesus is saying this. I I am like that woman. I am like that pregnant woman in labor. And you can be born again through my pain and my suffering, not just at the risk of my life, but at the cost of my life. And I will have joy through my death in seeing you have new life. And friends, all we have to do is to be like the Israelites when they were bitten by poisonous snakes. We just have to look to Jesus Christ, to no one else, The Bible says God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Listen, God didn't give all kinds of other avatars. One avatar to this group of people, one avatar to that group of people, one avatar to this group of people in order that they might have eternal life. God gave his one and only son. He gave the one who was nearest and dearest to him. And Christ went to the cross, and if we will look to the Lord Jesus like the people looked at the snake, we will be born again. And so here Daniel 7 and John chapter 3 come all together for us. Listen, some of you have been struggling to make this happen. You, 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 you've been working at this. Like you're thinking, like, I keep coming, I keep hearing the Bible, I'm like, I, there's, I gotta change, I gotta do this, I gotta do that, I gotta make myself better, I, I have to make myself worthy of this happening to me. You know what you're doing? You're looking to yourself. You're looking to yourself. There is no salvation in you. You cannot save yourself. You can't produce this supernatural work of God. You must simply surrender to the fact that Jesus Christ has done it all for you on the cross, and you just simply look to him and you are saved. The Holy Spirit is directing you to see who died for you and to see what he did when he died for you. And Jesus is saying, look to me, look to my cross, believe me, trust me, rest in me, repent of all of this stuff that you're doing to think you can attain this and believe what I have done for you. Would you stand please? When a person is born again, what we just sang becomes real. Jesus becomes everything to us. It's like we knew about him before, 
it's like we had all the facts before, but when the new birth happens, it's like he, he's, just, he's just everything. And we see him for who he really is. Paul puts it this way. We see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. That's the video. That's the video, not the audio. It's no longer audio. It's now video. That is, we see in Jesus something so marvelous and excellent, something so incredible that we want to just simply give ourselves to him, to abandon ourselves into his arms, into his to experience his love even more and more. This past week, on Tuesday and Thursday, a young man in his 20s and a young woman in her late 20s came to the church office and the gospel was shared with them and they opened their lives to Jesus and that is why the candle is lit here today to say thanks to God for saving them. And I would love to light the candle for more and more people. And if God has touched your heart, if today you say, John, the puzzle is coming clear now. The pieces are there, and I'm, I'm ready. I want to look to Jesus and no one else. If you're at that point and you want to experience the new birth today, then I, I trust that you will come and see me after worship. I'm going to ask our pastors to come to the front, even as I'm praying now at the end. And we will be here at the front to help you and to pray with you. As you leave the auditorium this morning, uh, make sure you pick up a copy of this. It has for you the names of the men who are letting their names stand to be elders in our church. The elders have given a lot of consideration to this, and we are looking for your affirmation. Voting will begin next Sunday morning after the worship time. So please take this information so that you will know who these men are and how you can vote for them. Lord, thank you for this time together in your presence today. We ask for the Holy Spirit's saving work of drawing individuals to Christ to happen now. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.